You're listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with practitioners, experts, and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. Today we hear Advocate Health's Don Calcagno, Senior Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer for Value Operations, and Terry Williams, Senior Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer for Partnerships and Strategy, who provide insight into Advocate's participation in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and share with Chess President and host Dr. Yates Lennon the successes that have been achieved along with some of the lessons learned. Well, Don, Terry, thank you for joining us on the Move to Value podcast today. Glad to have you. If you don't mind, um, Don, we'll let you start and just take a few minutes to tell our audience a little bit about yourself. And then, Terry, you go next um, and your the role you play at Advocate Health. Great. Thanks, uh, Dr. London. Um, my name is Don King. I'm currently the Senior Vice President, Chief Population Health Officer for Value Operations uh, for Advocate Health. Uh, I also serve as president of Advocate Physician Partners, which is a large, sophisticated, clinically integrated network in the Chicagoland area. Um, personally, I'm a lab tech by training. Uh, completed my schooling in 1992. Um, I have an MBA as well from Northwestern Kellogg. Um, and uh, I've been with Advocate for uh, quite some time in various different roles from lab tech to others, but I've been a vice president of operations, senior vice president of ops, and I've been um, either the president or a senior vice president of population health at Advocate Advocate Rural Health since about 2015. So thanks for having me, Dr. London. Look forward to the conversation. Yeah, glad to have you. Look forward to it. Terry? Hi, I'm Terry Williams, Chief Population Health Officer with Focus on Partnerships and Strategy for Advocate Health. And uh, in terms of background, I was Chief Strategy Officer at a couple of health systems for about a decade, as well as started population health at uh, one of them that we'll talk about a little later today. And uh, I'm also responsible for looking at how we can tie together the academic enterprise and some of the innovations that are happening there into what we're actually doing in population health. So to give you one example, there was a, something called the EFI, Electronic Frailty Index, that mm -hmm. was developed in the School of Medicine. It's the single best indicator we have found for predicting future utilization. And so we use that to, we think, really do some unique work in our population health work by incorporating that measure. Yep, familiar with the EFI. And I think you just opened the door for a couple more podcasts right there in that one one statement. So, um, well, one of the things we wanted to do today with, uh, with you all is to talk a little bit about the MSSP program and advocates' participation in that. Um, I know we look forward to hearing about some of the successes as well as the challenges that you all have and are and are facing. It's interesting the the program now is what uh, 11, 12 years old and um, NACOS uh, just recently at their fall um, conference released some stats and uh, I'll, I'll um, read some of those to you. So since 2012, the ACOs have saved Medicare $21.5 billion in gross savings and $8.3 billion in net savings. So that's since the beginning of the program. For 22, it was the sixth straight 
sixth straight year that ACOs delivered net savings to Medicare. 84% of ACOs in 2022 saved Medicare money, and almost 60% of them were in two-sided risk arrangements. So when you think about where this program started and when it started, it sounds like success, right? We're moving in the right direction. With that backdrop, though, I would love for you all to talk a little bit about advocates' participation in MSSP specifically and maybe start, um, Terry, if you don't mind, start with the story of the Southeast, um, which would be Atrium and Wake Forest and their journey up to 22. And then, Don, you do the same thing for the Midwest, and then we'll tackle 22 as advocate as a whole. Okay, sure. So the journey for in population health being a really committed journey started 10 years ago in the Southeast with Wake Forest, uh, Wake Forest Baptist, which is now Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist is a part of Advocate Health. And at that time, that was highly unusual for an academic medical center to say they were committing to a value-based journey. And, and but there were some thought leaders there that, and, and, and uh, uh, believe that that was what we wanted to do, and I was enthused about that, and so we stood up a program for the first time. Part of the other unique history here is we decided to partner with a organization that you're familiar with, uh, Cornerstone, which had set set up a company. Actually, that company was Chess uh, to help guide physician practices and hospitals in the region and and beyond to go on a journey to value-based care. There was there were not a lot of good roadmaps, although you'll hear in a minute from Don, um, Advocate uh, really has had an even longer history and has right. been doing some amazing work even well before this. But a part of what was stitched together was not only the a pop health team, but we said we want to be very intentional on how we work with the Wake Forest Center for Aging, the Center for Alzheimer's. We have a, a unique division of public health sciences there that does some of the largest studies around the world. Uh, the SPRINT trial, for example, in, in blood pressure control was coordinated out of Wake. You might have seen that announced on the news a few years ago. So that's the history with Wake Forest Baptist. The other three areas in the Southeast, in terms of their history, all came forward, and I'm talking about in Charlotte, for example, in, and in, in Georgia, is that those population health efforts started about five to seven years ago uh, with different leaders that kind of had a vision for where this needed to go. And in fact, the largest ACO in North Carolina is in Charlotte and is, is Collaborative Physician Alliance. And, uh, and so there really are some thought leaders spread across two or three states that we brought together to make the Southeast region and then have come together with the Midwest region through our, uh, when our we came together about a year ago, and it's just made a really amazing team in terms of experiences, clinicians, administrative folks that just have a lot of lessons to share with one another. And so um, that's that's the history that brings us up uh, pretty current to today. Okay, thanks, Siri. Don. Yeah, great. Uh, jump right in, and uh, first, I want to say thanks for having us on your podcast. You know, the Move to Value is one of the must-listen-to podcasts that I have, so I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to actually be on it. Um, as Terry said, uh, great history in the Southeast and then in the Midwest as well. So uh, in the Midwest, Advocate Aurora Health has had this incredibly rich history on value-based care that really predates everything back to the 1980s. 
Um, for those of you uh, old enough like myself, you remember that the 90s, everyone thought everything was going to be capitated. Um, well, in 1995, Advocate Physician Partners, which you'll probably hear me slip and call it APP, uh, was formed. And really, that was an inflection point for Advocate Aurora Health. So at that point, we, we first started as a messenger model where we brought our physicians together, helped them get good rates with pairs. But early on, we morphed into a clinically integrated network, a CIN, uh, so much so that um, we uh, had some discussions with the Federal Trade Commission in the early 2000s that landed with the FTC consent. <laughs> Those um, are always fun. Always fun, but uh, it's really a good spot because it did help us flush out what a CIN should be. Um, but because of our history, we've been taking financial risk since the 1990s. And by that, I mean commercial HMO capitated risk. Um, but then really in the early 2000s, as we were morphing into the CIN, we started implementing pay for performance and we kept expanding our uh, metrics. So our metrics started as primary care, heat is ambulatory, but then we moved to specialists and we added hospitals. We brought in evidence-based medicine. We brought in post-acute. So our history really is around becoming a clinically integrated network focused on improving quality metrics across the continuum with a sound belief that doing good quality care is going to reduce total cost of care. Um, when the ACA came along, was being developed, um, we actually kind of jumped ahead of it for better or for worse. Uh, APP launched a, a commercial ACO with the largest payer in the market, Blue Cross Blue Shield Illinois. At the time, it was one of the first commercial ACOs in the country. And it, again, it was even before the ACA launched with MSSP. Um, but really, at the end of the day, we're going to continue to lean into healthcare transformation. Right? We're talking about MSSP today, but there's commercial ACOs, there's Medicare Advantage, there's other um, CMS Innovation Center uh, bundles that we're super excited about. And as Terry pointed out, when our organizations come together, it's just the capabilities from both of us come together. We're really going to drive and really focus on helping people live fully. All right. So that gets us up to 2022. And um, let's talk a little bit about the ACO, the advocate ACO footprint, if you will, and and recognizing uh, Don in, in your uh, story of for the Midwest. I mean, we're obviously focusing in on a somewhat narrow portion of um, patient lives in value-based care as we talk about MSSP today because you all have value-based agreements across Medicare Advantage and commercial and and I'm sure even direct to employer uh, offerings. So we're we're narrowing in on MSSP today. But so how many traditional Medicare ACOs um, were are there were there in 2022 uh, across the advocate footprint? How many patient lives were um, covered in those um, ACOs? So in uh, 20, 2022, we have eight active affiliated um, MSSP ACOs. And I say active now because we do have three predecessors that are no longer active. Um, of those ACOs, six are MSSP, and they really range from track B, which I think everyone's aware is upside only, to enhance, which is the most risk we can take. Um, and the way you get to eight, we also have two ACO reach programs, one professional in the Southeast and one global um, in, right. in the Midwest. When you look at the lives, if, if you just add them all up um, across the current active ones, we have about 270,000 uh, lives across all of those. If you include when we've had the inactive ones, we're about 350,000 lives, so quite a bit. And to your point, uh, Dr. Lennon, is uh, we're talking CMMI, but we'd be remiss if we also didn't talk about the fact uh, when Advocate Healthcare thinks about value-based care and pop health, we have four clinically integrated networks, CINs across several states, and collectively we're managing 2.3 million value-based lives. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. That was that dawned on me as we were having that, that conversation that we really are looking at a narrow slice of uh, value-based care work uh, in the enterprise today. I think one of the reasons, though, that it's an important slice to look at is because there is a similar set of rules across the country that allow people to see how they're doing. When you start moving into the commercial space, everything can, the rules can vary so much by state that it's really hard to see how you're doing. And so I think some of the, as we use MSSP as an important measure of how we're doing for our teams, it's helpful that we know that there's kind of a consistent rule set. Now, there's also some wrinkles, and maybe we'll talk about that later in terms of how baselines, when they're when they're set, how they're reset, that that but uh, in general, the rules are similar, quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing we can talk about for just a, a few minutes, if, if you guys are open to it, if uh, Don, I think you said two enhanced um, MSSPs, I believe, and then there are two ACO reaches. Those offer some benefit enhancements, which for patients and patients' families, I think just just as important when I think about the skilled nursing facility waiver, these um, risk programs in the MSS, the um, CMS and CMMI models offer some benefit enhancements to uh, patients and their families that get them closer to being on par with some of the benefits that are offered in some of the Medicare Advantage programs. I know in our experience, we've we have found the skilled nursing facility waiver to be um, a crowd pleaser for patients and like I said a couple of times already their families um, because they're oftentimes looking at a loved one who uh, is at high risk of a fall needs skilled care but doesn't qualify for the inpatient stay and so you're almost waiting for a disaster to happen to get the patient to the care they need and most of the MA plans do have that three-day waiver uh, the waiver of the three-day stay prior to a sniff so I don't know if either, either of you want to take just a minute and expound on your thoughts about how the CMS and CMMI programs can bring maybe even some parity to offerings to MA. Yeah, you know, one of the things I'd call, and it builds off what Terry said as well, is one of the things I fundamentally believe is um, CMMI programs, MSSP specifically, um, too many organizations kind of treat it as a side hustle. Mm -hmm. versus um, the way we like to approach it is it's kind of a life cycle and in, in, in that you, you're you not just doing it because, hey, all the cool kids are doing, but you're actually getting in, you're, you're learning, you're developing capabilities. And to your point, you can advance from upside only to maybe a little downside to maybe a lot of downside, right? And, and that's really how I'd encourage folks to think about it. This is not a one and done. This is not a side hustle. This takes commitment to um, actually pull off. But to your point, traditional Medicare, um, the way some of the benefits are lined up doesn't really support value-based care. And that's why there's some waivers or um, safe harbors within the, the regulation so that we can do things. Uh, much like you discussed, um, the SNF waiver has been incredibly valuable, um, you know, getting around the three-night stay uh, rule and things like that. So I, I do think there's probably opportunity for even more wa waivers as the programs advance. Um, but I also realize, um, you know, it's a, it's going to be a slow, methodical process to get there. 
Can I maybe give one other example on how we're really intentional trying to use the talents in a broad way to help drive innovation? And and I love your words, Don, that it's not a side hustle. It's core to what we think is necessary to be transforming for the future. And that is so a, a few years ago, the Wake Forest School of Medicine the Center for Aging was in a study called DCARE, funded by PCORI, that's specifically looking at how to provide care to patients with dementia, which is a huge and growing issue in this country. A lot of the issues include what happens to the caregivers, often people at home that are taking care of those patients. Well, that study just was releasing its actual results in 2023. While the study, and Wake was one of five places in the country that was very much involved in the study with a high degree of patients and providers participating. CMS worked closely with those results over the last couple of years and with PCORI and just announced in this summer the new guide model from CMMI, which is the division, you know, as you know, that really creates these new models. Well, because we've been so seriously working on this, uh, we will apply to be in the first wave, which is a pretty high bar. And this is actually going to create funding for caregivers at home. They'll have an annual payment for some respite time when they need to recharge their batteries at home. And after we've done the first wave in one of our markets, we'll then roll it out across Advocate the next year. And the number of patients and families that are going to be dramatically positively impacted because of this model and including funding to for where they haven't had it is is going to be dramatic. It will be many tens, tens of thousands. But that's an example that only through really intentionally tying together the research, being a part of the innovation engine, using that to be first into some of these programs. You don't do that if this was a side hustle, right? You'd kind of wait until others have tried things right. out and get around. And we said, no, we feel a responsibility. We've got we've got talented people. Let's really use it to drive innovation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You brought up the God model. I'm just sitting here with a inbox message on that that program and i think our philosophy at chess has always been that mssp is the foundation that's where you begin it's um it's the beginning of your journey and continues to be the foundation of your journey so that's great Uh, well let's talk a little bit about your outcomes Uh, what did you see across the various acos uh in the advocate footprint um in terms of your outcomes and if you want to talk in aggregate or individually where you saw pockets of great success, feel free to to take take that approach as well. Yeah, I can jump in here. And uh, first, I just want to thank all the outstanding engaged physicians, our clinicians, our teammates, the leaders. I mean, we're blessed to have a lot of folks working very diligently to improve the health of our patients that we're privileged to serve. Yep. And what's cool about it is along the way, we're also helping to change the healthcare industry uh, through these different payer models. So a big kudos to the, the team taking care of the patients. Um, when you zoom out, you see across the six advocate uh, affiliated MSSP ACOs. In, two, in 2022, we actually generated 128.2 million in savings. Um, and along the way, we improved quality and lowered total cost of care. So 128.2. So that's quite a bit of money, and we're pretty excited about that. But I'll tell you what I think is more exciting is we generated over three quarters of a billion dollars in savings since the program started. Well, you rattled off some of the stats that NACO said. Yeah. Uh, right. Really moving the needle. And we feel we're a big part of leading that. Absolutely. And the reason that excites us, this is, you know, 
you talk to me and Terry and our teams, we are so committed to demonstrating to the nation that a transformational health healthcare model that focuses on population health management can improve quality while lowering total cost of care. So we see MSSP as proof point to that while, while early in the journey to us, it's just like, hey, this is a real possible point. Yeah, awesome. Um, Terry, anything to add to that? Yes, I, I think that one of the other things that we see because we have a common rule set is our ability to work across our eight ACOs to share lessons. You have a common language, you had a common rule set, and there are innovations happening. Sometimes it's at, you know in the home, sometimes it's how we're reducing ED admissions or having uh, some type of specific type of um, work with patients that are diabetic, for example. And as we figure those things out, we are really intentional to spread those across the organization. We've only been as a total new advocate health for the last year, but the level of collaboration and the drive to really not worry, we're not worried about who gets credit. We want to make sure that when we have new things that work, that we spread those so that others can benefit. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk a little bit now about um, some of the successes, like in particular, like where did you see things that maybe surprised you that were wins that you perhaps didn't see coming? Or did you have some challenges that maybe surprised you as well and you didn't see coming? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because with eight ACOs, I'm sure you had different um, uh, thoughts about what what happened in your different markets across the, the Midwest and the Southeast. Yeah, we can jump in on that and Terry and I can uh, uh, tag team it for sure. Um, and I think what you just said, uh, Yates, really hits it on the head is, um, and, and it builds off again what Terry was just saying, right? We, ha we have actually the opportunity because we have these eight different ACOs, six different MSSPs that we can learn things in in different areas. And it, it, it's about, hey, if something's working somewhere, how do we quickly learn and adapt that and scale mm -hmm. that and all that? Right. Um, so staying staying fairly high level, when we look at it, we, we did see um, basically, we saw in some areas, strength and claim-based quality measures, hospital admissions, sniff utilization, condition management. Um, but in other areas, we saw those as exact opportunities as well. So, so you know, you could say it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And when we look at it, um, if you zoom out at the macro level, um, to me, if you can boil it down to this, that accurately identifying our chronic disease patients, enrolling them in chronic disease programs, better manage their disease. That's the opportunity. Right. And while I believe our care at Advocate is top quality in the country, I think as an industry, we, we all have the opportunity. And I am a firm believer, the reason I'm passionate about the space is if we do that well, we will see a reduction in emergency room visits. We will see a reduction in hospital admissions, et cetera, because it's the disease sequelae that really drives this kind of stuff. Uh, second thing I would say is, and, and you're seeing this across the country, it's just that that opportunity to help patients convalesce at home instead of at a skilled nursing facility. Mm -hmm. And make no mistake about it, there's times that a, a SNF, a skilled nursing facility, is absolutely necessary. And we want our patients to be there if that's the right place for them. Um, but if they're there, we also want them to be there until they're convalesced and recovered to a point to be discharged. We don't want them to stay longer uh, than they should. And one of the things that's pretty cool for us is we are blessed at Advocate Health to have a very advanced post-acute home care program that we can help our patients recover at home 
sometimes skipping, skipping the sniff altogether, other times starting up the sniff, then advancing the whole care as well. The thing, I'll add a couple more thoughts. One is that the commitment to health equity at Advocate Health is extremely high. And so that means that as we're working with patients, having intentionality to connect them with other resources that are that affect the social drivers of health is really important. So there have been systems built so that there's closed loop referrals that are going to help patients get connected with other resources in the community. We also have a, a network of where we work with community organizations and faith organizations, several hundred of them, to help them be more intentional of providing for uh, care and resources that people need for their lives. And uh, and then, as you saw, heard in the D-Care example around dementia a minute ago, that entire program was about how do you help people that have dementia to be in a home environment successfully taken care of. And so that that work, of, of course, uh, we have people that have to come into the hospital and we want to provide and do provide exceptional care when they're there. But we really have a drive to keep them in a venue that can actually work uh, well for them so that they don't have to have admission unless absolutely necessary. That's really important. That uh, hits home for me. My dad died of dementia um, in his last six months to a year he managed to stay at home thanks to my mom but watching her as the caregiver uh, it is a grinding process on a caregiver and so being able to to support those patients and their caregivers is going to be critically important and keeping them at home is um is ideal well, in, in spite of a lot of successes that we've talked about today, um, it appears that over the last few years, the, the um, number of participants in ACOs, meaning providers or provider groups, has really plateaued. Um, there was a sort of a rapid increase and then several years ago plateaued out. What do you all think about why that might be? And then what can be done in the future maybe to increase participation? Because to hit that goal of all lives and um, value-based agreements by 2030 for traditional Medicare, uh, we've got some work to do. It's not that far away. So I'll jump in. I think making the journey attractive is key for some of the organizations that are still sitting on the sideline. As you've heard from Don and I, we have a deep commitment within the organization and among our leaders that we're we're on this journey and we don't have to be coaxed off the sideline and yet the programs need to be have enough uh, predictability and understandability in the rule set that some people that maybe don't haven't gotten their feet yet wet yet could feel comfortable jumping in also think that um that some of the, there's been some challenges around benchmarking at times that I think may dissuade some mm -hmm. folks from getting in because they either feel like that process is not quite figured out or it's unpredictable enough that they feel like if they did all this tremendous work and yet it didn't show up because of a methodology that they felt wasn't quite figured out, then that can also be a big dissuader. And then the other thing that I think maybe has been affecting some of the ACO participation to be plateaued, as you mentioned, is there's been quite a bit of private equity participation jumping in to uh, participate. A lot of it's been in Medicare Advantage, but the some of these entities are really running towards providers, getting them to sign up to be a part of a program, 
and um, maybe there's a shorter term time horizon on what, how they're wanting to perform economically. And I think CMS has taken note of this and, in fact, has changed some programs. You would have some would have noticed that the direct contracting model, which had a lot of uh, private equity entities um, jumping into it, that CMS did not believe that was good for health in the country and that there wasn't a long-term time horizon. So when ACO REACH came out, the rules were dramatically changed to really make sure that a certain phenotype of, of committed provider was who was let in. And so I think that this sort of race on the front lines to get physicians to jump in if you start if the private equity entities actually start taking apart some of the net, net local networks that people might have used in their aco that will make them hesitate on do they have an adequate network to actually participate in a program so um those are a couple of things that i'll highlight i'm sure don will add a few more yeah i 100 agree with terry on that and and the other thing, if you if you think about those people sitting on the sidelines, or you know, in my view, people aren't fully committed more of the side hustle approach. Um, when when I talk to my peers across the country, um, one of the questions that ultimately comes up is, is there value in value based care? And I think what they're meaning is, do programs like MSSP create a win win win, meaning the patient, the payer, CMS in this case, and the provider. Right, because what we're really talking about is change management, and it's hard enough to do change when things are perfectly aligned. If things aren't aligned, then right. you're going to find it very difficult to accomplish what you want. And so I'm very optimistic on it. I think the response to this, if you think about MSSP, is yes, there is immense value and possibilities in there. But much like the um, um, uh, benchmarks, things that Terry was talking about, there's things that happen from time to time in CMS and CMMI that you know, basically make it a little difficult um, to want to be in there because they're not practical or rational. And I'll give you one example. Um, CMS, who is the one that puts together MSSP, requires physicians to participate at the TIN level. Whereas REACH, which is a CMMI program, and by the way, you can only be in REACH or MSSP, you can't be in both. REACH requires you to be at the 10 NPI level, meaning the physician level. So practice level versus physician level. So if you are a large IDN, much like us, where you have your employed physicians under a single 10, you're forced to choose, am I doing MSSB or REACH? So prior to the integration with the Southeast and the Midwest, after Aurora, we, we wanted to do REACH because we feel so committed to health equity. It literally cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars an immense amount of time we were creating a workaround to enable to put a subset of physicians into reach. So we we're committed enough we did it, but I would have to bet across the country there's IDNs that said, nope, not doing that. Right. So I, I think the point of it is, be it CMS or CMI, or I'll even bring in the commercial value of payers, right? It has to be a benefit to all stakeholders. It can't be a win-lose situation, but it also has to be very pragmatic and practical Healthcare is hard enough without that, because otherwise, I mean, it's hard enough just to do change management without those things. So completely agree. I, I remain bullish on the whole thing uh, that I do believe values here. and We're going to continue plowing towards it. Um, but again, be it our commercial payers, our, our CMMI, our CMMS, CMS we, we need to get better at some of those details. One of the things when people are joining new programs or contemplating, and this is also involves in life, you're joining some new, you know, club or opportunity to sign up. Is you're you're 
a lot of people try to figure out and how's it going to go? How predictable is the journey? And I know that we experienced this year, even though the 128 million that was saved was very significant. And I think uh, really the largest group of funds saved in the country of, of, of a family of ACOs. But there was unpredictability in some of our markets where we actually thought the savings was going to be much higher based on the interim reporting that we were getting during the year. And so, again, we're very proud of those results. But if we would have used the interim results from a few months earlier, we would have predicted even more significant savings. And right. again, we're committed, so we're moving forward. But there are entities that if they had a year of, a year or two of predictability, especially if their results were built into their budgets and their budgets roll up to uh, public reporting and bondholders where they could really uh, feel like that they were hung out to dry because of the big gap between interim reporting and what was the final reporting. So that that's a pretty big uh, factor, I think, that may be affecting some from jumping in, because if those entities then tell five of their friends or their you know fellow organizations, you can see how that might make them skittish. Yeah, exactly. Another example of that, Terry, you'll remember back to 2016, I think it was, and year one for uh, Chess and Wake Forest and NextGen, and <laughs> that rebasing occurred mid-year and just wiped out all the savings uh, in year one. Um, so I can see where people might run for the hills when those things happen more than one year in a row. Yeah, and I would just I just pile on to what both of you are saying is think about BPCIA, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're all in it, and CMMI changed the rules. Uh, very few people are in it anymore, and we're still reaping the re repercussions of them changing the rules. So, again, back to the point of this is, I think Terry used the term predictable. This has to be predictable because changing rules midstream is not going to give people confidence to invest in the resources that need to be invested. That's right. And then if I think back to the waivers for just a minute that we spoke of earlier, there's we've talked about the SNF waiver fairly exhaustively, but there's a cost sharing waiver and there's the um, uh, post-discharge home visit waiver. There's a handful of different waivers. They tend to be administratively very burdensome. And I think it's aimed at avoiding or preventing abuse or waste, but it creates significant administrative burden where you look at what's required to operationalize some of those waivers and you just walk away and say, we can't do it. I mean, it, it, it's just, the value is just not there. So as we um, wrap up, this has been very interesting and really appreciate you guys taking the time uh, to spend with us this afternoon. But one last question. So how do you see uh, health systems, provider groups? Terry, you've talked a little bit about private equity already. But working with organizations like CHESS, value uh, enablement entities, um, to really further the goal. How do we work together to further the goal that Medicare has set of all Medicare lives and value-based arrangements by 2030? Yeah, I think that especially if you look around the country at the, the entities that are highly committed and they believe there's a philosophical uh, belief that they want to lead in this space and that there's a responsibility to innovate and create models that can be helpful to others, that's probably a lot of the people that are currently in. The people that are not yet in uh, have a variety of reasons, but some of it is generally either because they're not sure how they would do it or their concerns about it. And, and just to be clear, 
you have to say you're not just living for the fee-for-service model. I'm sure there are some organizations that are really, really still committed there. But let's assume that if you're going to have all Medicare patients are going to be in an APM by the year 2030, as you said, and we're at, you know in the 40s in terms of penetration now, that still means we're not yet halfway. And so a lot of changes in front of us. I think that means we have some uncomfortable organizations that are going to need to get on the playing field. And it seems to me that an organization like Chess is kind of an ideal partner to come alongside, help make the journey more sure-footed, make it um, clear what needs to be done, learn lessons from others, don't you know step in holes that um, you've already learned lessons from. And so I, I really think that... Um, there's for the the people that are not yet on board that there's really a lot of wisdom in coming alongside a partnering organization to help in that journey. Yeah, and, and I totally agree with everything Terry just said, and, and I would just add we've said it multiple times, but CMS pushing folks into APMs by 2030. Payers, if you talk to them, want to move through the value. Employers are demanding more value. I mean, at the end of the day, healthcare clinicians and providers are absolutely going to have to get the value. Now, to the point Terry just made, Advocate Health in both of our regions spent decades developing capabilities, be it Wake, Atrium, Chess, APP, right? We have a lot of scars and hard-learned lessons. Um, right. What is fortunate for folks now is you don't have to learn those lessons again. I mean, this is to me where a company like Chess, it's a turnkey solution to help you get in because you're going to have to get in. So. To me, taking advantage of those opportunities is definitely something people should be looking at. The the one other thing I'll add, I agree very much with what Don said, is that we've talked about the benefits of the value-based journey for improving care models for patients. One of the other things that I know is implicit for all of us, but I just want to say it explicitly, is these models are better for providers. Mm -hmm. You know, to move from kind of the fee-for-service uh, treadmill to start looking at populations, panels of patients, and handling them in a, in a more sophisticated care team model where the physician is still involved, but they understand what the care team is doing and they have helped empower that. I think this, this has to be one of the major solutions to this labor challenge that we have both with physicians and nurses in this country. I don't, I don't know how it is navigated without advanced team-based models that move care to new locations and, and expand the definition of care team. So back to Don's win-win-win proposition, we believe this journey can be and should be a win-win-win proposition. Doesn't mean it's easy and you do need some smart people. And of course, coming along someone like Chess to help on the journey is wise, but it's so fulfilling and the, and the people's lives that we're seeing change, some of the stories we get from both patients providers and their families are really amazing yep. and make it all worthwhile. Yeah, they truly are. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, spending some time with us this afternoon on the Mood to Value podcast. I've enjoyed it very much, and I'm sure we will reach out to do this again. Great. Thank Thanks you. for having us. This is the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you would like more information about this and other episodes, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to check out all of the available resources. If you're interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can sign up for our email notifications or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, 
We would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across your networks and leave a rating or review. Thanks for listening.